Well, good evening, everybody. Is there a little more light down this end? Maybe not. Um, Isaac is up here tonight because Isaac is going to illustrate the sermon tonight. A task seemingly far more impossible than mine, which is only to talk. But um, he's just going to do his thing while I'm going over the text and moving on from that to a subject that I think comes up an awful lot in this text, and that is hospitality. So uh, pay attention to whomever you want to, the screen, Isaac, me, whatever. Our prayer is definitely that uh, God speaks to you through some medium tonight. Well, as Dave was saying, um, Paul has been through it. And if there's anything that is the theme of the last several chapters of Acts, it is that God's sovereignty works for Paul's redemption. I mean, it started chapters ago when the mob went against him in Jerusalem. His own people turned on him. There were assassination plots such that he couldn't even be jailed in Jerusalem, so they moved him 60 miles to the governor's palace in Caesarea. He sat there for two years waiting for someone to make a decision on his case. Never charged, just sat there. Occasionally called before the officials, some form of jacked-up trial. Finally, Paul takes the initiative and says, I'm a Roman citizen. I want to go to Rome to appear before the emperor. And he's granted that request. He's put on a ship with other prisoners and guards. And the ship goes off course because it's late in the sailing season. There's a storm for two weeks. They have to throw everything overboard just to keep the ship afloat. They have no idea where in the Mediterranean Sea they are. And God delivers him through that storm, but into a shipwreck when they get near to the island of Malta. And then he gets on land, and he's bit by a poisonous snake. Man, bad karma, Paul. What did you do? God delivers him through that. And I think uh, let's, let's not let it go without saying that for two years of frustration and boredom and being paraded in front of officials when they wanted a show, Paul was delivered from sins of anger and frustration and hatred. And I don't, I don't discount them as anything less than the physical things that he was delivered from. So tonight we're going to look. He's on the island of Malta. Let's see. Ben said I can point out to you. It's that itty-bitty little island there. It's not even the size of the city of Denver. But he's gone all that distance, and he's still not getting his wish to be in front of Nero, the emperor, yet. Once safely on shore, we found out the island was called Malta because, remember, there was a storm. It was dark. They hadn't seen the sun in two weeks. They had no idea what direction they were going. And when they landed, the islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Well, yeah, it was pre-dawn. I mean, as soon as the ship hit that sandbar, um, they got off as it was breaking up. And imagine how cold and wet you would be in whatever clothing you had decided to jump overboard with. In the fall, maybe 50 degrees, raining, storm. But, yeah, they built them some fires. 
there's a little bit of, um, it's been downplayed a little bit when the NIV calls these people the islanders. The word Paul actually uses, or Luke uses, is the barbarians, barbaroi, by which he meant these are people that don't speak Greek. And they don't speak Greek. I don't know what they're speaking. They're speaking Punic, if anybody cares. But so you would have this encounter of people who have just jumped off a ship, landing on an island, and they can't even communicate with the people, but they're showing them unusual kindness. There's this tendency I think we all have, like if somebody doesn't speak our language, we speak louder, and maybe then they can understand us. And you know it doesn't work that way. I think we've all done it. But Luke is struck by the unusual kindness these people show. Philanthropoi, from which we get the word philanthropy. And it is unusual. I, don't, I mean, these are probably peasant laborers who have come down to the shore, and maybe they are accustomed to helping people who have gone through shipwreck. But um, there's no cargo left, so there's nothing to repay them with. There's nothing in it for them. Maybe they were um, peasants or laborers on nearby estates, like the one we'll hear about later, and they were told, down there, go down there, rescue those people. But there's irony in this that shouldn't go past us. On an island in the middle of the Mediterranean, barbarians... Foreigners who don't know Luke, Paul, or any of these other prisoners or Roman guards are showing unusual kindness. And yet when Paul was in the prison in the governor's palace, no kindness shown him. There's irony in that these Gentile barbarians are showing him unusual kindness. And what started this whole thing was when Paul told his own people, the Jews, that God was sending him to the Gentiles. They tried to assassinate him. And now those very Gentiles, the lowest of the low as far as socioeconomic classes, are the ones very literally saving their lives after the shipwreck. There's so many upside-down aspects of the kingdom of God. It seems like the ones who are the poorest, the least resourced, the least educated can actually be the lifesavers. No excuse about what you don't have in order to be a lifesaver to someone else. Another little reversal. Paul should have been shivering in the cold too, but he's right in there. The unexpected guest on the island gets involved in the responsibilities of the host. He's out there gathering firewood, just like anyone else. And uh, a snake that had been hidden in the brush latches onto him. And the people are like, oh, this guy gets out of a shipwreck, and now he's bit by a snake? He must be a murderer. I mean, justice is coming around to get him. But then... When, he sees, when they see that nothing's happening to him, they do a complete 180. Whoa, he must be a god. Nothing happened to him. And one little lesson we can get out of this is even a miracle can be misinterpreted unless there are words to go along and explain 
the God of the universe who has provided the miracle. Now, again, they're not speaking any language at this point. These peasants are not speaking any language that Paul or Luke speak. So they, they don't realize at this point that the people are beginning to think he's a god. That must have become as an explanation later on when some of the um, other folks of the island who could either speak, who could speak some Greek or maybe someone in Paul's crowd had some Latin. Later on, they could actually talk to each other. But at this point, uh, there's just that irony. He didn't die. He must be a god. And I wonder sometimes, you know, if we don't use our words, use your words, people, people are not going to know why you're being kind or why you're doing what you're doing, or why you've had the fortune you've had, or why your prayers have been answered. Don't let these opportunities go without an explanation. It's an easy way to slip in a little glory and praise to our Lord when something good happens to you. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. Paul shakes the snake off into the fire and suffers no ill effect. And can you picture picture these peasants just standing there waiting for him to swell up and die, swell up and die. They're waiting for a show here. Nothing unusual happened. They changed their mind and decided he must be a god. And Paul goes on. Paul's always making friends. Paul goes on to make even more influential friends. He winds up in the home of one of the wealthiest, most influential people on the island, Publius. Now, granted, Paul is a Roman citizen, Roman citizen kindness to Roman citizen. Paul's a prisoner. He's a prisoner. Why was he invited into the home of the wealthiest, most influential man on the island. What influence, what character did he have that would cause him also to receive this generous hospitality? Yet another surprise in the kingdom of God that the prisoner is welcomed. He welcomed us into his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. Well, here comes God's sovereign plan. But first, let's note that when, um, when Paul was offered hospitality by this wealthy Gentile, again, he didn't balk and say, oh, can, can I ask about your kosher kitchen? Is, is the diet going to be according to my ritual standards? No, no, no. Paul had gotten beyond the laws of his Jewishness because he understood the mission that he had to reach Gentiles. And here was his, his words in action. No question. No question about accepting this hospitality. I'm there. Complete openness to, him, to being welcomed by this Gentile. The others, the other 276, the Romans probably just rounded up a bunch of people and said, you got to house them, you got to feed them. We're Roman soldiers, and we can tell you to do that. Sort of like happened, you know, American history, Revolutionary War. Publius's father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. And when this happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. 
Publius is the benefactor, but Paul does him a much bigger favor. Here's those amazing reversals in the kingdom of God again. I, I can picture this. Paul is in chains. He's either chained to a soldier or perhaps is in some kind of shackles. And yet, in chains, he puts his hands out onto the head of this sick man. And by the power of God, the man is healed. Publius might be the big man on the island, but Paul is the apostle. He is the sent one, which is what the word apostle means. He was sent to a very receptive people in Malta by God's sovereign plan. And I think it's worth noting here, too, you don't see anything about incantations or magic or potions, and there's no little hints about a little payment for this prayer. This is nothing but... A man, Paul, who has his eyes open to God, sees the need, allows the power of God and the grace of God to flow through him. Prayer alone is what allows this healing. And we have seen healings here at SCUM, and they are the same. They are through prayer. Nothing magic, no hocus-pocus. No payment demanded. Sorry, Larry. <laughs> Nothing free of charge. Grace freely given, given away again. And so, yeah, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. And uh, later, church history will tell us an awful lot of them came to faith, too. Good, strong church established on Malta. Luke, who's telling the story finishes it up this way. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with all the supplies they needed. You know, here again, the, the prisoner is honored in many ways. What can he give back? Well, he can give back the power of God. And when they were ready to sail again, which wasn't for another three months, they had to spend the whole winter there, so that was a long time for somebody to be offering hospitality, willingly or unwillingly. They furnished us with all the supplies we needed because, again, prisoners under military transport to Rome were not supplied with food or blankets or things they needed. If your friends didn't supply it, you went without. And so here the people of Malta are, again, showing hospitality. So... I hope it's not too much of a stretch for me to have seen in this passage so much of God's sovereignty, but the interplay of humans in working it out. God's sovereignty worked out often through human hospitality. And that's what I wanted to concentrate on tonight. Because Odds are very good that most of us are not going to experience shipwreck. And not very many of us have a miraculous gift of healing, although some will. But every one of us can offer hospitality. Now, let me be clear what I'm not talking about. I am not talking about dinner at Grandma's house with a bunch of podgy food, an awkward conversation, and eyes riveted on you in judgment 
I'm not talking about that kind of hospitality. Mention that with the holidays coming up. And I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, like your, your hipster friends inviting you over for organic kimchi tacos and homebrew and bragging about their bikes and their holidays, all very minimalist, of course. Not that kind of bragging, underhanded, showing off. That's not, that's not hospitality. But I'm not talking about just hanging out either. Sup. Nothing. Sup. Nothing. And then an hour later, see you. Yeah, buddy. That's not hospitality either. I want to look at, you know, if there's one point to the sermon, it is God's sovereignty worked out through human responsibility. Let me give you about 15 subpoints or so. Hospitality uses God's eyes to see things through God's perspective. These eyes see the image of God in every one of his creations. God's eyes don't see class. They don't see education. They don't see what's in your wallet. They see the the image of God imprinted in each one of us. So we look at one another, not as a problem to be fixed, or not as something very useful. Eh, If I just kind of cozy up to this one, that's going to be a very useful networking opportunity for me. Hospitality through God's eyes will look at everyone with dignity and worth, not what's in it for me. We tend to gravitate toward our own tribe of people. We like people who are like us. That's easy. That's comfortable. I like people who like my kind of music. I like people who look like me. I like people who hang out where I hang out. But God's eyes in the vastness of his creation will see that people who are different bring an aspect of understanding God and his plan and his work and his beauty and his creativity that just hanging out with people like me won't. And we can begin to appreciate people because, because they are different. Not liking them despite the, you know, because they're different, but I'll like them anyhow. But appreciating differences. Story to tell on myself. I was working at Inner City Health Center years ago, and this woman came in, and I could barely see her for the number of kids clinging to her. I'm working as a nurse thinking, okay, I know what this woman needs to learn because there's just too many of these little things all over her. (laughs) Well, it turns out that three of the kids were hers. One of them belonged to her sister, and the sister worked full-time to support all of them. And the fifth one was a neighbor's child, but the, the neighbor was even sicker, so she'd offered to babysit the child for a day. And I felt about that big because here I am little suburban savior driving into the city to work with these poor people and I'm fussing about finding and paying a babysitter to watch my children and this woman's just it's my sister so of course I'm watching her well you're sick sure I'll I'll watch him 
And I learned such a lesson about my own stereotypes and prejudices. And I learned about looking at people through God's eyes. Not prejudging their situation. And appreciating this woman had far more freedom than I did. Because I was bound by the norms of my little middle class suburb that said, you pay a babysitter. Hospitality involves sacrifice. Faithful hospitality usually involves laying down our lives in little pieces, in small acts of sacrificial love and service. Another story I really enjoy is that of a a man named Robert Lupton, a psychologist who years ago decided he was going to move into the inner city in Atlanta and uh, open up his home, have a Bible study, invite the neighbors in. And this elderly woman who lived alone in the neighborhood, Mrs. Smith, loved to come over. And whenever she did, Mrs. Smith made a beeline for his favorite chair, his very expensive lazy boy chair. And she loved this chair, far more comfortable than anything she had in her, her house. Problem was, Mrs. Smith had a little continence problem. And Dr. Lupton tried to, as he was trying to figure out what to do about this, his justification for telling her not to sit in the chair was going to be stewardship. If I keep this chair, preserve this chair, if no one abuses this chair, I will have this chair for 20 years, and all the money I've saved on redecorating can be used to help the poor. And he realized that's bullshit. (laughs) Mrs. Smith gets to sit in the chair regardless of what happens to the chair. Laying down your life one little sacrifice at a time. Sometimes I think it would be easier to take a bullet than to actually live sacrificially. I'd rather take a bullet than... I have to give you one more hour. (laughs) What, drive 10 miles out of my way? 20 bucks again! (laughs) But hospitality, just like we recognize those who are different, teach us aspects of God. Sacrifice in and of itself teaches us about God and God's provision. And I encourage us all to seek out opportunities to sacrifice. That sounds weird because America is all about finding a comfortable life and settling in. And Christianity in so many circles is all about finding a comfortable life and settling in. And I am urging you to look for opportunities to sacrifice. Offer hospitality in a sacrificial way. Hospitality is about sharing, but it's about far more than charity. Charity can be done at a distance. I write a check. I toss a bit of money out there. I reach out the window. I give away a half-eaten burrito. That's charity. But hospitality invites someone into my life and with compassion walks alongside of them. It's far, far deeper. It's far more personally involving me. When we have dinner at SCUM, I've often been asked um, by groups, can we come in and serve dinner? And I jump on that phrase. You are very welcome to come in and make dinner, but you are not going to stand on one side of the table and decide 
what somebody on the other side of the table is allowed to eat tonight. They're going to pick it up themselves. That's the difference between handing out charity and sharing with compassion. And if somebody wants to stuff their pockets, we decided a long time ago at SCUM, we're not going to fight that. We're not climbing that hill. We are not determining how hungry you are or how worthy you are for how much food you take. That's the difference between charity and hospitality that says, here, if I have it, it's yours to share. Take what you want. Take what you need. Hospitality initiates. Oh, I have been around scum. (laughs) I've been around scum when the entire congregation is walking around looking at their own toes, and the extroverts are looking at someone else's toes, and that's about as good as it gets. But hospitality takes the risk of initiating. Hello. How are you? I'm going to tell a story now, and then I'm going to owe him a milkshake. But Eric Webb, who plays so well in worship, was nervous about making a verbal announcement about Bible study. And yet he did it. He initiated. And as someone who's in that study, I want to urge all of you, you should all be there. But sometimes our, uh, our reticence, our, oh, I'm just shy, I'm just introverted. You're just too proud to go off your butt and go say hello to somebody who's different, who might reject you or might just latch on and say, thank you so much, because this is a really weird place, and I don't know where to go or what to do. We want to have hospitable places. I think scum does good at that. It's comfortable, but it's not so pristine that you have to worry about whether there's mud on your boots when you come in. It's reasonably clean. We recycle the furniture whenever we find anything living in them. (laughs) True. But hospitality has to have room for brokenness to come in. This is not going to be one of those places that says, look, we got a, a hose and a baptismal font outside, so when you're clean up, you're welcome to come in. No, no, no. You come in. You come in as you are into this place. It's a place where you can bring your wounds. It's a safe place. But hospitality has to have boundaries, folks. If hospitality is to provide a place of safety for everyone, for all participants, emotionally and physically, there have to be boundaries. Hospitality cannot exist in anarchy. You can't say, y'all can do whatever you want because then this will not be a safe place. When scum, when we got this building, I remember people thinking, yeah, we have our own building now. We don't have to be like those other churches. We can have parties. We can have drinking. We can, and I was like, um, Jesus, we probably have more alcoholics and recovering alcoholics in this church than most in the city of Denver. Is that really what we want to do? So you won't see keggers going on in scum. Regardless of the laws of the state of Colorado, you're not allowed to use recreational or medicinal drugs on the premises. We have boundaries. Scum of the Earth Church is a Christian community. And no one's required to conform with anything Scum of the Earth Church believes 
But respect is expected. Just expect it. Civility is expected. Because hospitality creates a safe place for all who are participating in it. Hospitality starts in me. Let's get a little spiritual here for a second. God has extended a welcome to me. Hopefully I am welcome I am carving out a space for his spirit to be active in me. And hopefully in this space the spirit then can prompt my hospitality toward others. I can't create this space in myself if I'm forever busy in my own head or even busy in my actions. If I can't be quiet to listen to God, if I can't carve out an area where God can speak to me, how in the world can I provide hospitality to others? And I ask myself questions like, am I a safe person. Here's a kind of lengthy quote, but it's from the mid-1800s. I had it hanging on my wall in high school and thought it was cool. It's even older than me, though. Oh, the comfort, the inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with a person, having neither to weigh thoughts nor measure words, but pouring them all right out just as they are, chaff and grain together, certain that a faithful hand will come and sift them, keep what is worth keeping, and then with a breath of kindness, blow the rest away. Just this week, somebody called me, and they had a grief. It wasn't about scum, by the way. They had a grief, and I tell you what, my phone was smoking with the vocabulary and anger that was coming through in these text messages. And the last one was, I just needed to vent. It's like, well then I need to be a safe person. I am not going to tell you who it was or what it was about. I am not going to gossip. I'm going to keep that confidentiality. I'm going to keep what was worth keeping. Blow the rest away. I'm a safe person. In conversation, I don't want to be interrupting, cracking a joke to switch up the mood because I'm getting uncomfortable. I want to be a safe person. Am I present? Am I really here listening? A few years ago, I was supposed to meet an African friend for lunch. I was just sick that day. I didn't want to go. So I called her up and said, I just just can't do it. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry you're sick. Do you want me to come sit with you? I was like, that's weird. (laughs) No, what, what? And then I remember, you know, African hospitality says you never leave somebody alone when they're ill. You go and you sit with them. You are present with them. Way different than us. But man, then I thought, how gracious. She was going to drive an hour across town to sit with me? Wow. That's, that's one of those little sacrifices. A few years ago, I also, when I was working on my Ph.D., I had a rather nasty run-in with a supervisor. Left me very upset. Called a friend who said, well, I think I can take an early lunch. Let's meet for coffee. 
And so I show up at the coffee shop, and I am ready to dump. And he looks at me and goes, wait, wait, wait. Before you start, let me just ask, are you going to want advice, or do you want me to just listen? And I just stopped dead in my tracks. Because I was in my 50s, and I don't think anybody had ever asked me that before. Do you want advice, or do you want me to just listen? I didn't know just listen was an option. That conversation really turned a lot of my life around. Just listen, attentive, without analyzing, evaluating, waiting for a break in the conversation to give some good advice. Just being present. When I'm present, I'm not only willing to listen, I'm willing to emotionally be moved and saddened and troubled or elated by the other person's story. That's hospitality. When you are side-by-side in a safe and present situation, I'm not putting somebody on a timetable of like, didn't we talk about this last week? Aren't you better yet? It's a safe place. Hospitality. Welcome me in the troubled. Unlike our quick throw-it-away or fix-it society. And hospitality requires dialogue. Not the chit-chat, not superficial chit-chat, just to avoid getting serious. Not an information dump to correct this person's problems. Not arguing to prove that I really know what I'm doing. And not mocking. But genuinely listening back and forth, my ideas, your ideas. Allow people to tell their stories because storytelling is healing in and of itself. I was mentoring somebody years ago. It seems like this is all years ago, but that kind of throws you off the track when I say years ago, in a, in a galaxy far, far away. Been mentoring and meeting with this person weekly for a year and a half, and then suddenly one day, out came the whole life story, 90 minutes. And it was a pretty freaking awesome story. Awful, not awesome, awful story. And I listened. I didn't want to break the mood. But in a pause, I just said, wow, you're a survivor. Anything else? And she went on for another hour. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) more than I expected. But the secrets were out and the power was broken because somebody was willing to look that person in the eye and not go, oh, my God, oh, disgusting, oh, back away, oh, sin, don't contaminate me. Just listen, be hospitable, be receptive, and help people break the power of sin and secrets that have held them. You don't have to be a superstar, theologian, pastor to do this. Mediating God's grace is something anyone who has Christ and the Spirit in them can do. Let it flow through. I was leading a scum Bible study several years ago. (laughs) Um, It was the week before Christmas, 12 women involved in this study. And all of a sudden, I'm realizing six of them are talking about how to handle the holidays with relatives who have physically and sexually abused them. I'm like, oh, man, I got nothing 
to add to this conversation. My role in mediating God's grace at that point was just to make sure the conversation kept going as they supported one another. No big theological breakthroughs, no great psychological insights, just the support of person to person, mediating God's grace. That's hospitality. Hospitality can sometimes get incredibly subversive. This whole welcoming the stranger thing, not just my tribe, not just people who are productive, not just people who are going to serve me well, not just people who are going to keep the status quo going, but when the larger society prejudges and marginalizes people, it ought to be the hospitality of the church that reverses that indignity, that reestablishes that worth. Any and all people created in the image of God, which means we need to speak up for those who are not given a voice in our society. Immigrants, homeless, jobless, poor, mentally ill. They ought to be welcome in the church and the church be their advocates. Hospitality can make the invisible visible. It brings the injustices out in the open just by refusing to follow the norms that have produced the injustice. It gives dignity to those who society says aren't worth it. I've heard on more than one occasion a homeless person say, the worst thing is I don't even get noticed. People can walk over me and around me. They don't even notice me. When people are socially invisible, their needs and concerns are not acknowledged, and no one even notices the injustice they suffer, says one author on hospitality. We need to notice those who have been so far cast aside, our society says they don't even exist. One Christmas, when we, um, we had a family visiting us from the Midwest, and friends from Scum coming over, and one couple saw a homeless guy on the way over, so brought him along. We didn't know squat about this guy. It was a very interesting afternoon. And he was just so, so appreciative. I mean, and I thought he, he was the brave one. He got in a car with people he didn't know to go out to a home with people he didn't know, trusting they would get him back in time to the, to the mission where he had to be or else he'd be breaking parole, which was part of the interesting story. But this Midwest couple, family that was staying with us, the wife said, I've never met a homeless person before. Jim, do we have homeless people in our town? Yes. Yes, you do. She'd never seen them before. Never noticed them. Hospitality makes the invisible visible. Not to put it on display or show or to point a finger at it, but just to welcome more people as seen. To put it bluntly, this is a, another author, Christine Pohl. Hospitality is a moral issue. It's just not grandma's dinner. It's not just, you know, homebrew with your friends. 
It was a law in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19.34 says, The foreigner residing among you must be treated as a native-born. Love them as yourself, for you are foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And in Matthew 25, Jesus makes hospitality a way of life that pleases him. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And the disciple said, excuse me, when? What? When did that happen? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whenever you did it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And if hospitality is a moral issue, and if we have the spirit of a hospitable God living in us, how can we do anything less than involve ourselves in all parts and phases of our political and economic and social lives in being welcoming to those who are created in the image of God? So hospitality, I say, is fundamental to Christian identity. God was hospitable to me. He took a risk on me. We won't get into the whole God knows everything and he knew what he was doing. If he took a risk on me, I need to take a risk on others. Do you ever think of it? Hospitality, hospital, places of healing and redemption, whether it's a relationship or a physical place, it's where healing can occur. Another woman I knew once came to me here at Scum, and um, she was very honest. She said that she was um, kind of having a bit of a relationship with her boss. He was married. This is a long time ago again. Nobody here tonight. And uh, I didn't know what to do with this information. I mean, you know, I mean, I could have read her the rules and reminded her of, you know, her sin and blah, 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 blah. Fortunately, before I said anything to her, I called Mike, and uh, his words are burned in my memory when he said, just hang on to her. Hang on to her. The world is never going to tell her to change. Hang on to her. And I think that's an essence of hospitality. God hangs on to us even after salvation when we totally mess up. He hangs on to us because the world will let us get away with whatever we want. So we have to hang on to one another and offer that hospitality. And it is hard, hard work. Hospitality is going to mess with your pocketbook It's going to mess with your time. It's going to mess with your comfort zone. Some more quotes from Christine Pohl. To offer hospitality, we need to rethink and reshape our priorities. To give someone else our full attention means we view that person as a human being, not an embodied need or interruption. To offer hospitality requires we allow a place for uncertainty, 
contingency, and tragedy in our lives. Hospitality is some of the hardest work you can ever do. Hospitality involves forgiveness. You know, our culture says, if there's a new one out, upgrade. And if what you have is broken, throw it away. And we do that even in our relationships. There's a better one. I'll go for that friendship. Well, that broke. Throw it away. We suck at repairing the relationships we have broken. And we are horrible at forgiving someone who has hurt us. But again, hospitality is like a hospital. It's an invitation to healing and restoration. It's opening up a wound to clean it in a pure and sterile and safe environment, like in the community of the church. When you can't do this on your own, you've got your brothers and sisters here to help you forgive or to be forgiven. I help the one who is too ashamed to confess their sins. I help take that burden off their shoulders and put it at the cross, sort of like in Pilgrim's Progress. I can offer that explanation of God took a risk on me and has forgiven me. God will take a risk on you and forgive you and hang on to you. I can forgive because I am in a community, a safe community, a hospitable community where healing and redemption can occur. Eucharist is lavish hospitality, and when we get to communion, I'll talk about that later. Hospitality also means we pray one for another. What concerns you is important to me, regardless of how trivial or embarrassing you may think it is. And so we pray for one another. And we are worthy to be heard, everyone worthy to be heard, which is why we have such an emphasis here where we'll have the prayer cave open during communion if you want somebody to pray with you directly. While we we will have an open time of prayer in just a little bit that Dave will lead. Why we have a prayer box if you want to leave a written request for prayer. Because we want to be in communication. We want to be in the hospitable presence of God and let him be the healer. So, yeah, Paul got over a snake bite. Paul was well-fed on the big man's estate. Paul was protected by a sovereign God. But part of that protection came through the action of human hospitality. And that's why I want to urge us, look at the world through God's eyes. Have God's hospitable grace in you. Don't be afraid to challenge what society says about the status quo of who is and who isn't worth hospitality. And remember, this is part of your identity, Christian. It is hard work to forgive, to share, and to pray. But that's what we do, one for another. Thanks.